You're listening to KZUM 89.3 FM and KZUM HD here in Lincoln, Nebraska. My name is Beth Menhusen, one of your co-hosts for Counterbalance. Welcome. Good morning, and my name is Richard Randolph, uh, also a co-host for Counterbalance Radio. Beth and I are both pastors at Christ Connection Point United Methodist Church here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Good morning, Beth. Good morning, Richard. Today we are here with author Mary Pfeiffer and discussing the new and nonpartisan Poor People's Campaign. Mary will be sharing her experiences uh, from when she attended the Poor People's Moral Action Congress in Washington, D.C. Uh, she's excited about the potential for the Poor People's Campaign to bring about much-needed social justice, as are we. Um, I believe that this movement is something that all progressives should be aware of and consider supporting. I certainly agree with you, Beth. I think this is a really important show uh, as we talk about the Poor People's Campaign. Um, we have a lot to discuss this morning. Yes, we but do. But before we get started, why don't we start off with a, a song from the Poor People's Campaign? Yes, this is a protest song called Rise for All Creation. We rise before the seas. Welcome back to Counterbalance, a weekly radio show on KZUM. Our show focuses on social, ethical, spiritual, and faith issues from a progressive Christian perspective. We have named our new show Counterbalance because we seek to counterbalance more conservative Christian perspectives. <clears throat> My name is Richard Randolph, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Counterbalance. And I'm Beth Menhusen, your other co-host for this show. Both Richard and I are pastors at Christ and Connection Point United Methodist Church here in Lincoln. One church in two locations with two very different personalities, but a shared commitment to acting inclusively, seeking God, serving others, and always working for justice. That's right. At Christ Connection Point, we strive to welcome and include and infer, affirm all persons, regardless of their ethnicity, economic class, or sexual orientation. We recognize that all persons are created in the image of God and loved by God for who they are. For more information about our church, please visit ChristUMCLINC.org or ConnectionPointLNK.org. Beth, our focus today is on the new emerging Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Uh, this uh, movement is led by Reverend William Barber II and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. The Poor People's Campaign is a nonpartisan movement that seeks to unite people across the country to challenge the evils of sy systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, and our nation's truly distorted morality. That's right, Richard. Um, and joining us in the studio to discuss the Poor People's Campaign is psychologist and noted author uh, Mary Pfeiffer. Uh, we had a conversation with her earlier this week about this and thought that our KZUM listeners needed to be a part of it. Um, right. Mary was born in the Ozarks and grew up in rural Nebraska. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Nebraska. She's published 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Reviving Ophelia, which explored the difficulty that adolescent girls have growing up in a world of sexism and violence. Recently, on the 25th anniversary of Reviving Ophelia, Mary and her daughter, Sarah Pfeiffer Gilliam, did I say that right? <laughs> Revised and updated Reviving Ophelia to account for the new challenges that adolescent girls are still navigating. Um, in addition to that book, Mary has written The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves and Our Capsized Culture, a book on the environmental crisis that she's very passionate about. Uh, her most recent book is Women Rowing North, Navigating Life's Currents and Flourishing as We Age. In addition to being a successful author, Mary is a community organizer and activist. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. Good to have <clears throat> you. Excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. Let me uh, chase him out. <laughs> there we go. <clears throat> uh, Mary, we're really glad to uh, have you in our uh, on our show today. And as Beth mentioned, we uh, we met with you uh, earlier this week, and I think both Beth and I were just inspired by your passion uh, for uh, the Poor People's uh, Moral Congress, uh, which you attended in Washington D.C. this summer. Um, just uh, the passion that you felt, and, and um, so we're just wondering if we could begin by having you 
Tell us about your experience uh, at that at that big event. Thank you. I'd love to. You know, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me, listening audience. Mm-hmm. I uh, didn't know much about Reverend Barber, but uh, <clears throat> I'd read about him and was very interested in his decision to take up the mantle of Martin Luther King Jr. and lead uh, the Poor People's Campaign uh, for both white and black people in the way Martin Luther King had planned to at the time of his death. Mm -hmm. Um, Reverend Barber uses the language of Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. and he also uh, trained at the Highlander School, which is where many of the civil rights activists trained, and he... uh, wants to begin in this country what he calls the third reconstruction. The first reconstruction was after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second really began with the death of um, the murder of Evett Till. Mm -hmm. And and then the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and 60s. But now he's saying it's time for another great movement forward. Mm-hmm. And that this time, it won't just be for African-American people. It will be for poor people. And one of the points that's really interesting Barber makes is that most of the poor people in this country are white. Right. There's 130 million poor people in this country, and most of them are white. Right. But uh, I first heard of Barber when he started his Moral Mondays in North Carolina mm-hmm. to protest the really... Um, draconian legislature mm-hmm. in his state. And uh, he is an amazing community organizer. He had 85,000 people at the state house in wow. North Carolina to uh, protest his legislature. And they, they, uh, they managed to stop most of the um, actions of this legislature and then elect a new legislature. <clears throat> but after that, he started organizing all over the South. And I'd been following some... But uh, I had an opportunity this June to go to Washington, D.C. and be part of the Poor People's Congress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing opportunity for me. For one thing, um, I had never spent a lot of time around uh, African-American people from the South. Mm -hmm. And the main people that came to this Congress were about 1,100 or 1,200 people who were bussed in from Jackson, Mississippi, from towns all over the South. And uh, there were also homeless people that came from all over the country. There were quite a few people who came from what we call the Rust Belt. And we all lived together in um, dorm rooms at Howard University. Mm -hmm. And we met in a a large gymnasium. And we, we slept in the same dorms. We ate the same food. And we listened to Reverend Barber and Liz Theo Harris and other people for three days. And the way Barber begins addressing us is to say, dear family. Mm -hmm. Now, I mention that because this particular group of people was a fairly diverse group. There were moral leaders, which uh, primarily meant ministers, and a lot of Southern ministers, a lot of uh, African-American ministers from Southern churches. There were advocates like myself and then there were 1,100, 1,200 people who, um, for the most part, didn't know each other mm-hmm. from all over the country. Mm-hmm. But when he called us a family, that opened up space for us to trust each other. Mm-hmm. So that was a wonderful thing. Whenever I sat down by someone, they knew that the two of us were on the same side and we were there for the same reason. And um, the first thing that happened was Reverend Barber spoke. Okay. And he's a he's a large man. He uh, has a, a paralyzed spine, so he moves very awkwardly, and he doesn't look healthy. He's only fifty one, but he looks about seventy. Mm. And he kind of had trouble getting out on the stage. I almost felt sorry for him, <clears throat> but then when he speaks, he sounds like uh, Moses. He sounds yeah. like he's very Martin powerful. Luther King, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so the first thing he talked about was why we were in D.C. And we were there to interview nine presidential candidates, mm. and we were there to deliver a moral budget to the Congressional Budget Committee on mm-hmm. Wednesday. And we were there to tell 
Washington leaders that we expected this country to deal with poverty. Mm -hmm. And so he started out by saying that his goals were very simple. And the example he gave was in North Carolina, they have something called the snake line. And the people who live below that, they're, they're kind of down where it floods. They're down right. in the darkness. They're more, in, the, in the mountains in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're more vulnerable to snakes and spiders and so on. The people above live in the sunlight, less vulnerable to flooding. And Reverend Barber said, I just want to get everybody above the snake line. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked about how we no longer have time to be siloed in one cause or another. We need to all work together to help uh, the um, environmental movement, right. to help with the criminal justice system, uh, to help with uh, poverty and medical care for all, mm-hmm. and also to deal with our military industrial war machine, mm-hmm. which is taking most of our money. And uh, one of the things Barbara talked about was we have a false narrative in this country, which is scarcity. Mm -hmm. In fact, he had some very um, wonky people deconstruct the federal budget and show that if it were written as a moral budget to take care of the American people, we have plenty of money to Mm -hmm. do everything we need to do. Mm -hmm. And here's one example of that. The military budget alone gets 54% of the discretionary money in this country. Well, of that 54%, over half goes to military contractors. And some of these military contractors make several million dollars a year. The average soldier going into the service makes 22,000 a year. But we have 800 bases all over the world. The next nearest country has 20 bases. We're spending an enormous amount of money on military. And if we spent less, we would have more money to deal with our environmental problems, to deal with housing problems, to have Medicare for all, and so on. So he actually has a program where you can look up, say, the cost of a cruise missile, $41 million, and see how that translates into teacher's pay Mm -hmm. in a state. Mm -hmm. So he started with that. And then he interviewed nine presidential candidates. He actually let them talk four minutes. And then he and Liz Theo Harris and what he calls impacted people, people impacted by destructive government policies. They questioned the candidates. And it was really interesting because um, especially the impacted people were people that... um, had such desperate lives and were empowered by the opportunity to actually ask presidential candidates questions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the one I remember that happened first was Biden. And these two little girls got up and they said, at our playground on the South Bronx, um, when we go out to play at recess, the teachers warn us that don't get poked with needles because you could get HIV and die. Mm. What will you do about that, President Biden? And um, then there was another young guy from McDonald's in Tampa, Florida, Mm -hmm. and he got up and he asked one of the candidates what they would do about minimum wage. He'd been working for 11 years for $8 an hour. He'd married a woman who worked at McDonald's, and he talked about what it was like to try to raise a family in Tampa when the wage earners were making eight bucks an hour. Right. So it was just very moving to have an opportunity to see the people Barber was with. Mm-hmm. And Barber himself is brilliant, charismatic, strategic, full of heart. He's absolutely worthy to be the next Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you so much. Let's... um. I, I like the questions he asked. Had the the candidates yeah. uh, answer. They were they weren't they were policy questions, but they were specific. Like, how would your policies? What 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 would you do with your policies to get needles out of the playground of right. our school? Mm-hmm. Re- really, really giving voice to, I think, marginalized people, poor people. We don't normally see those types of 
questions uh, for presidential candidates. Um, we see policy questions, but not sort of sp- sp- uh, contextualized in terms of a particular two two little girls or uh, a, a couple trying to to make ends meet on two salaries from uh, McDonald's. Mm-hmm. So I really like what he did uh, in terms of setting up that uh, that part of the uh, of the event. But let's talk specifically about the overall findings of the Souls of Poor Folk audit that the campaign has conducted. Uh, this was a, an audit that uh, they contracted out to specialists, economists, and, and uh, public policy uh, experts. And um, what, what we have is that the United States has abundant resources for an economic revival that will move move us towards a moral economy. And uh, as you mentioned, the report identifies $350 billion in annual military uh, cuts that would make the nation and the world more secure. Um, $886 billion in estimated annual re- revenue from fair taxes on the wealthy and corporations and, and on Wall Street. And billions more in savings from ending mass incarceration, addressing climate change, and meeting other key campaign demands. So, uh, Mary, could you just talk a little bit more about uh, about those? Uh, I think this is an important part of the Poor People's Campaign. And um, what, what, what are your thoughts on the audit and, and what its sure. implications are? Well, one thing I really respect about Reverend Barber and Liz Theo Harris is they uh, base all of their um, <coughs> thinking on evidence, not ideology. Mm-hmm. They're nonpartisan. They think our political conversation is too anemic and too small for the, the moment. Right. And um, one of the points they make is that poverty has not even been seriously addressed in this country. The entire last presidential campaign... Candidates would occasionally talk about the middle class, mm-hmm. but nobody talked about the poor, which is 130 million people in this country, a significant, right. significant. share. Almost half right. of the country. And a third of the people in this country are one catastrophe away from homelessness. Well, and they said in the um, report that actually catastrophe they define as like one $400 emergency. Oh yeah. Like just having like a $400 medical bill that you don't expect. Or the right. transmission in your car. Yeah. Transmission. Out. Yeah. Something like that could send someone into homelessness right. or, or a very, or especially health problem. Yeah. Can immediately right. do mm-hmm. it. So one of the things that this moral budget, they very much wanted to do with this moral budget was show that if we rejiggered the budget to actually be a moral budget and meet the needs of people, as opposed to being a sort of a, a budget configured to shovel money into the hands of certain corporate structures, that we could have an incredibly different country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another thing right. they talked quite a bit about was the fact that a lot of the things that happen in this country uh, have a disparate impact on the poor. So, for example... The environment, environmental justice is an important part of Barber's movement because if there's a a bad flood uh, or uh, the forest fires, say, out in Paradise, California, rich people can go stay in a hotel, have insurance, can rebuild. Poor people can't go stay in a hotel. They they can't rebuild. They often don't have insurance. So one of Barber's really beautiful and unique arguments is that that helping the poor is sort of the opposite drip of trickle-down economics. Mm-hmm. If you actually arrange this country so that everybody has adequate housing, medical care, good medical care, access to education, protection from environmental hazards, um, a fair criminal justice system that doesn't penalize the poor more than other people. Mm-hmm. You haven't just helped the poor. You have fixed the country. You have changed the country. Helped everybody. Now, one of my ideas about Lincoln is if we apply this uh, set of ideas to Lincoln, we could really become a transformative city. Because when you think about Lincoln, we aren't like Jackson, Mississippi. We aren't like Fleet, Michigan. 
this is a pretty prosperous town with a relatively high um, uh, standard of living, right. a relatively small proportion of people who are terribly poor. And so one way to think about Lincoln is we actually have a chance of doing what Barber is saying the whole country can do, mm-hmm. which is make sure everybody has um, a livable wage. Barber said that to have a livable wage in terms of being able to afford housing, healthy food, medical care, good education, and right. so on, $22 an hour per adult. Mm-hmm. If we could have a town where we were actually working toward that kind of a goal, we, we, could, really, we could really eliminate poverty in this town mm-hmm. to the benefit of all of us. Yeah, um, so I've done some research about livable wages for the classes that I teach at Connection Point. Um, and, you know, livable wage is, um, is can, can be really specific to geography. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the cost of living here in Lincoln is lower than the cost of living in New York City. Um, and I'm imagining Barber's numbers were kind of an aggregate of major right. cities throughout the U.S. I doubt if it would be 22 no, really, in Lincoln. The, the livable wage in Lincoln is closer to, to $12 an hour. So that's not even that high of a goal. <laughs> you know, if we could get to 15, people would really be prospering in Lincoln. Yeah. Um, so I think our minimum wage right now is a little over nine dollars an hour. Is that ten? Did it go up to ten? Well, what did our state vote the minimum wage should be? Remember, we voted and then the mm-hmm. governor um, vetoed, vetoed it. it. Of course, but I think it was twelve dollars an hour, maybe. I think that was the wage that was vetoed. that was that was proposed. Yeah, but it vetoed. Yeah. yeah. So even if we could even get there, that would be livable for people in in our area. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the minimum wage in Nebraska is nine dollars. Right per now hour. it's nine dollars. Yeah. But if we could just even get up to that twelve dollars an hour, right. um, and you know maybe you know longer term work towards something higher, like you mentioned, um, I think we'd be doing really good. Well, and the same with. We already have a, a, a popular vote for expanded Medicare. Mm-hmm. And if we could get that, the health care of people in our state and in our city would change very rapidly. Yeah. Um, I know that there's, we've interviewed people from Nebraska Appleseed on our show before, and they're working hard to, to get that actually accomplished right. uh, the way that the voters asked for it to be accomplished. Um, but yeah, that's, that's another huge step. To, to right. expand the Medicaid, a hu- huge, huge step in terms of what it would do for people, but really not that hard in terms of in terms of doing it. No, you, yeah, no. you called it earlier this week. You said low hanging fruit. You know, yeah, yeah, and that's a good good example of uh, <clears throat> Governor Ricketts based his decision on ideology, not evidence, with mm. that one, because the evidence is if people have good health care, they they do much better. They're more productive. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they're less of a drain on the economy of mm-hmm. the state, and the 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 financial benefits to the state are huge. And also in indirect ways, like hospitals staying open in Western right. Nebraska and so on. So it was an ideological decision, a fortunate decision. Mm-hmm. Which is what Barbara's point is that that's how. Business as usual in politics is being conducted all across of our con- our country right now. Right, being based upon ideology, and he's calling upon us to base it on, you know, facts, facts, uh, empirical evidence. Mm-hmm. So uh, it just seems so obvious to me. If if I go to my doctor, I want my doctor to base uh, her. Um, her care for me based upon empirical evidence, not upon ideology. Right, right. So uh, it's, uh, it's really important. Um, we, um, we probably should take a break right now, uh, Beth. And, um, but um, after this uh, break, Mary, I want to come back to you. And we talked about um, maybe Medicare and imp- improving the minimum wage uh, here in Lincoln. would be interested if you have other ideas of of what a people's a poor people's campaign in Lincoln might might set as goals, um, how we might uh, collectively address uh, different issues. Um, so, um, also as we go into this break, we just want to uh, Beth and I want to invite uh, our listeners to call in with questions and comments. Uh, there are several ways to share your thoughts. Uh, you can telephone into KZUM by calling 402-474-5086 and choose extension 1. Uh, if you have a contribution uh, that you would like to make but, but you don't want to go on the air because 
you're shy or you, you just don't want to talk um, on air, please call in anyway. You'll you'll talk um, to either uh, Beth or I off air, and then we can come back on air and share a summary of your thoughts and and the contribution you'd like to make to our 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 con- conversation this morning. Absolutely, we'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Counterbalance, a weekly radio show here on KZUM. Our show focuses on social, ethical, spiritual, and faith issues from a progressive Christian perspective. We have named our new show Counterbalance because we seek to counterbalance more conservative Christian perspectives. I'm Richard Randolph, one of the co-hosts for Counterbalance. And I'm Beth Menhusen, your other co-host. Today we're talking with Mary Pfeiffer, a local author about the new Emerging Poor People's Campaign led by uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. We're always very, very interested in what our listeners are thinking and what they have to say to us. So if you have a question or a comment, please feel free to call us at 402 474 5086 uh, extension one. You can also message us on Facebook just by just going to our Facebook page, which is Counterbalance KZUM on page on Facebook. And we have a Twitter account, which is at CB Radio KZUM. So, Mary, before the break, um, we were talking about the uh, the agenda of the Poor People's Campaign and kind of your experience in Washington, D.C., but we were starting to get um, a little more into what we can do in Lincoln. Um, and well, I'll just throw this out there. Uh, Nebraska is one of only two states in the country, right, that does, right. Not, have right. A, that does not have a chapter of the, the Poor People's Campaign. Right, that's oh. right. For example, Kansas has a the the hub of the Poor People's Campaign is Topeka and Lawrence, mm-hmm. but they also have a, a van that goes around the state and organizes uh, rural, in rural communities mm-hmm. because a lot of the poor people in Kansas and in Nebraska are living in rural areas. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about since I went to this extremely influential um, and inspirational conference in June is how do we apply this to Lincoln? Right. Because Reverend Barber has worked primarily in the South. Right. And uh, he's worked a great deal with racial issues. Now, I, I want to work with racial issues too because there's no question but what uh, uh, people of color are seriously impacted by disparate treatment, mm-hmm. by disparate federal policies, and so on. But... Lincoln actually is only 4% black. Uh, we have native population. We have immigrant populations. Mm-hmm. And so when we think of how do we apply this to Lincoln, mm-hmm. we'll have to make some adjustments mm-hmm. to, to help it work right in our town. One of the thoughts I had is how good it would be if we took the city's budget and reconfigured it as a moral budget mm-hmm. the way um, Barbara did. Right. And say, how would we do this budget differently if we looked at it primarily in terms of, of moral issues? Uh, you know, one of the really interesting things about Barber is he's saying that we really need to, to, to make America a good country, a true democracy again. We really need a new story. We need a new narrative. And the narrative needs to be a moral narrative. And so the idea that growth is good, the idea that we measure our quality of life by um, GNP right. is, is, is not really the way Barber thinks about things. So here in Lincoln, for example, one thing I'd really like to see us work on is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. When I visited the poorer parts of Lincoln, this is one of the biggest problems mm-hmm. is people can't afford Rent. Yeah. Or if they are affording rent, it's in a it's really in a bad, unsafe place. Right. And I can speak to that a little bit. Right. Um I both of us can go ahead. Yeah, I've worked with um well people that are in that situation, but also with community organizers from Collective Impact Lincoln. Um and they recently did um what they call deep canvassing of some of our most low income neighborhoods here in Lincoln and found out that housing is unaffordable for forty seven percent of Lincolnites that rent at all income levels. 
Um, and that's that's huge. Uh, so they found uh, of extremely low income people, um, twelve thousand in Lincoln cannot afford rent. Um, so ninety one percent of extremely low income families spend more than one third of their income on rent, which is uh, kind of the the healthy range. Um, and so they've been working to to create some ordinances with you know in city council mm-hmm. um, that, that would help. Uh, this this situation, I believe, what they've accomplished um, so far is um, it was a, a a change to eviction the eviction process that gives people a little longer time to to come up with mm-hmm. the rent they need. For instance, yeah. if they get an eviction notice, um, and I know that um, th- some talk is happening on the state level too. But one thing that they would really like to accomplish um, in Lincoln is what they call it's proactive um, inspections. Because as you mentioned, uh, especially in our lower income neighborhoods, um, there's affordable housing, um, but it's not something that most people would want to live in. I mean, it's unsafe. It's not up to code. Um, And so what these proact and if people call the city and say, my landlord is, these are unsafe living conditions. My landlord isn't making repairs. Um, this isn't up to code. Um, right now, the way it works, the, the only time that landlords get inspected is if somebody makes a call. And so the land, if the landlord gets a call from the city, like they know exactly why they got the call and they're going, there's going to be retribution for that renter more That's than right. likely. And so people, <clears throat> people don't report them. And so one thing that Collective Impact is is working on, to the best of my knowledge, is getting, you know, proactive, regular inspections of rental properties so that that kind of retribution cycle can be prevented so that the city would come in at regular intervals and inspect all rental properties proactively and help try work with landlords to bring them up to code so that the standard of living is better, um, even for people in the lower income housing. Um, and there are, it's hard because there, there are budget implications. It costs money um, to do that. But... Um, Cities on you know on the west coast on the east coast have have implemented it and in the long run it, it saves it saves money absolutely and it certainly increases the quality of living for people. Right. Well, for example, I've heard that um, one of the best things cities can do for homeless people is give them homes, right? And then they're not in ERs; they aren't dealing right. with the police constantly, and that's certainly something in Lincoln. Um, we we could make a real commitment to to having housing for homeless people. Mm-hmm. And we could also make a real commitment to better um, care as outpatients for the mentally ill because they're cycling through our criminal justice system and oh, yeah. homeless on the streets. You know, one of the things I, I feel very strongly about in Lincoln is we have a chance to make real impacts on a citywide basis. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, with the federal government right now, we have no chance. It's, it's just in gridlock, uh, total gridlock. And the leadership is not particularly sympathetic to these goals. And even at the state level, we have a, a very conservative leadership that's unlikely to be extremely helpful to us. But with our county and city government, I really feel like we have some room to, to maneuver. And, and housing, for example, housing subsidies might be something that mm-hmm. we could work into. The mm-hmm. inspections are good. Uh, doing more work with zoning so that when people build housing, they have um, more uh, low-income housing right. built into it as part mm-hmm. of it. Uh, all of those things would really help with housing. Another thing I would like to see in Lincoln is no bail. Because what happens with bail is it has a disparate impact on the poor. Mm-hmm. If you're a wealthy person and get arrested for a crime, you can post bail and go home and live as you always did, show up to work on Monday mm-hmm. morning and so on. If you're poor and get arrested, a lot of times you can't post bail. You can't come up with it. So then your choice is either to stay in jail and possibly lose your job and have your family lose its apartment or home, or to plead guilty to a lesser crime and get out. And so a lot of people that end up uh, not having money for bail actually plead guilty just to be able to be able to go home and go to work or watch their children. And I think bail is a really good example of something that uh, doesn't really make any sense. It's discriminatory against the poor. 
And there's, there's absolutely no evidence to think that uh, poor people are less likely to, uh, are more likely to, to flee than wealthy people. In fact, wealthy people have more resources to, to flee the area. So that would be one thing I'd like to see in Lincoln, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's also some work that we can do um, around, you know, immigration, um, yep. you know, as a, as a state, as a country, and even as a city. Um, one of the findings of the audit that the Poor People's Campaign did um, around the country um, called for a comprehensive immigration reform. It said it would allow millions of families to live in security and actually results in a net gain for the federal budget. Right. Um, so one immigration proposal in Congress would cost the federal government around $26 billion a year, but those costs would be more than balanced by the $46 billion per year in increased revenues from income and payroll taxes. So what they're talking about there, it seems to me, is, you know, allowing um, perhaps undocumented immigrants to, to go to work, to pay into the tax system, to receive the benefits that taxpayers receive, uh, like Medicaid, um, right. which although it, ha- it costs something, uh, the net gain is far bigger. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of arguments for that, including the fact that that people who are not healthy in our culture uh, it's it's not good for any of us. I mean, no, it's not. all of us being healthy is important to keep all of us healthy. You know, one other thing I, I want to mention about all this is that many people who um, uh, live in Lincoln, who live everywhere, are basically decent, good people. Uh, and, and this applies to, of course, both political parties and so on. Mm-hmm. But unless you've actually had some time with poor people and unless you've actually experienced what their lives are you can have an enormous empathy gap uh, in terms of understanding what it's like to be poor in america in 2020 Mm -hmm. and for example one thing that continually astonishes people my age is when i tell them how much daycare costs for children they Mm -hmm. have no idea how expensive it is to have children in decent daycare and so one of the great things for me about going to the Poor People's Congress in D.C. was actually spending three full days with people who were talking to me. I met a woman in Seattle who talked about losing her job. She was in her early 60s, uh, being downsized, not being able to find another job, mm-hmm. losing her apartment, and she's now sleeping under a bridge in Seattle. And until you meet people like that, until you talk to someone whose daughter died of breast cancer because she didn't have access to good medical care, mm-hmm. you don't quite really understand the critical urgency that some of these things change mm-hmm. immediately. So I was so grateful for that opportunity to actually be with people for three right. days that mm-hmm. could tell me their stories and share these experiences. And for people listening to your show, I think one of the best things they can do is actually um, think about ways they can get involved in helping people in this town who need, um, whether it's through the prison system or the school system or various refugee centers um, or food banks, whatever, actually have some contact and start familiarizing themselves with what it's like to be a a poor person in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had an interest, I mean, and I think... I think well, part of what the Poor People's Campaign is talking about is like the false narratives that we have. Yeah. Uh, and I think one false narrative is just is what um, what poverty looks like. Yeah. You know, like the who is the face yeah. of yeah. poverty. Um, and, you know, I think in Lincoln and across the country, it's, uh, you know, this image of welfare queens sort of right. developed, you know, it's people that freeloaders, freeloaders, people mm-hmm. who don't want to work, people mm-hmm. who are just mooching yeah. off the government. Um, but when we talk about healthcare specifically, there was a woman that I met at, in my work at Connection Point who was in her inner sixties. I mean, should have been looking forward to retirement uh, in a year or two. She had was had been a single mother, but she had worked her whole life. Um, right. She started like she worked downtown at one of the hotels. She was a bookkeeper. Um, in in the 90s she had lost her job but she did you know what you're supposed to do and she went back to southeast community college and got retrained so she was better at computers um 
and had been working really hard, um, you know, up, at, you know, in an office job and making making ends meet, you know, doing okay. I think she owned her home. Um, had been she'd been doing well until she got sick. She got sick oh a couple boy. of years ago, and she, I, I think, even with you know basic insurance, she had spent she spent all of her retirement savings to pay for her medical bills. And so then at that point, yep. she she couldn't retire, and she had to do more retraining to get back into the workforce. Um, and so I mean, so it's not it was you know a woman in her sixties. I mean, your my grandma, you know, yeah. could have been. Yeah. I mean, and that that was poverty. Um, and so I just think, yeah, getting to know people and hearing their stories and mm-hmm. just reframing poverty in our minds because it's not it's not the stereotype I think that we've made it out to be, and everybody's story is different. Um, but but medical costs I find are a common denominator uh, for so many people. The cost of healthcare, absolutely, healthcare is just <clears throat> so outrageous, and uh, there are not that many resources to help us with our healthcare and. I think of all of the triggers that can send someone into poverty, probably mm-hmm. the healthcare is the, the largest one has to be um, some sort of uh, healthcare emergency where, mm-hmm. as in the, the story you were telling, Beth, mm-hmm. uh, per, a person has to dip into their savings. A person who done everything right has right. to dip yeah. into their savings. We tend to think of the poor as people who've done who've made bad choices, wrong, yeah. who've made bad choices, who are lazy, et cetera, et cetera, but... Uh, but the reality is you can slip into poverty just through bad luck, even if you've been making all of the right choices and doing all of the right mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about it, it's just, I think, I, I really like the language of the poor people's campaign. It, we live in, without doubt, the most affluent society in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet, at the same time, we have so many people who are in poverty, who are struggling to stay out of poverty. And so, at some point, you've got to wake up and smell the coffee and say, what's going on? What's wrong? And why is this continuing when we have so many resources, when we have so much affluence? Mm -hmm. And I think um, one of these triggers um, is the poor people's movement. And I'm so grateful to uh, the organizers for, you know, starting that and, and Mary for uh, going to Washington to be a part of uh, that meeting and, and then bringing um, inspiration and passion back to Lincoln to see what we can do here locally. Um, But really when you just step back and think about it, um, it is simply a moral outrage that we can be the most affluent country in the history of the world Mm -hmm. and still be talking about these issues, which are critical issues. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think I I heard something, might've been something I read from the Poor People's Campaign or something I was listening to that made the point that, you know, from a faith perspective, there is no faith tradition in the world that says we should punish the poor that says, you know, that we should let this kind of injustice persist. Exactly. All people of faith, you know, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, agree that that we should be doing something about it. There's language and there's there's language that has really contributed this problem. Like um the phrase deserving poor. Mm. That's a very Mm. uh ugly phrase. Because it suggests somehow that there's a, a certain group of poor people that that deserve to be poor, you know right. that they, they they shouldn't be helped because somehow their own behavior, and and you know for example just taking one common thing is well a lot of people with drug and alcohol problems end up homeless. There's a lot of people with drug and alcohol problems that end up millionaires too. That's right. Uh, yes. It's yeah. just that um, the people who are homeless haven't had the advantages of the people who are drug and alcohol users that are millionaires. Or you just know? a good fortune. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Just a good fortune. You know, I just, uh, throughout this um, hour that we've been talking with Mary, I've been, uh, I, we've, um, we are a progressive Christian talk show, mm-hmm. and uh, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about economics and sociology and um I just want to, before we uh, close, I just want to put this in the context, I think, uh, just uh, read a 
uh, Mary, we hardly ever read scripture okay. uh, on <laughs> this show, but I think today I want to, I'm just going to read uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, mm-hmm. 25th chapter. Uh, this is when Jesus talks about judgment. And uh, I always think it's easy, it's really important that when Jesus talks about judgment, doctrine, right belief is not at all mentioned. Right. Mm-hmm. It's all mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. right practice. Mm-hmm. And so here's what Jesus says. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And we put, he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. And then the king shall say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous shall answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And and when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And and when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and, and, and visited you? And the king shall answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then a passage goes on the other side of the judgment. Those who haven't fed the hungry, cared for the sick, etc., mm-hmm. um, have, in essence, denied Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think um, it's a really popular passage out of the Bible, but it's popular for a reason. Mm-hmm. And that is that as... Um, uh, followers of Jesus Christ, however you you follow Christ, mm-hmm. whether you're in church every Sunday uh, or whether you um, are not always in church, maybe never in church, if you're a follower of Christ, these issues raised by the Poor People's Campaign are right at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to take this very seriously and we need to, um, I mean, we really... This is a golden opportunity, I think, for our society. We're asking a lot of questions right now. Our government is in, at the federal level, um, is in a, a, a gridlock. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a time of crisis. And, um, you know, times of crisis can also be times of rebirth and renewal and, uh, and um, uh, reestablishing our priorities and reestablishing our commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, with every crisis, there's an opportunity. And so I really feel that right now we're at a historical moment uh, to work on these issues, to make this a, a, a country, a society where everyone flourishes uh, and everyone has a chance to grow and to, uh, to become the, the, the person that they aspire to be uh, with the resources that they need in order to to achieve those goals. Um, I would just also say, um, you know, I think that it's not enough to give a human person adequate food and clothing and housing. Uh, It's not enough to give a person just handouts, like here's Mm -hmm. what you, here's the food you need, here's a place to Mm -hmm. stay. Um, I just um, believe that a fundamental attribute of being a human person is to feel like you're living with dignity. Mm-hmm. Dignity is so important to the human psyche. Mm-hmm. And dignity comes when we feel like we can take care of ourselves and when we can contribute to our, our own community. And um, we have a lot of work to do before we can get our, our society to a point where people have that ability to experience dignity in their lives, to be able to stand on their own feet and be sustainable financially, to have the, enough time to contribute to their community in whatever way that is, whether mm-hmm. it's running for office or coaching a girls softball team or uh, you know being a chair of a committee at, in the community or at their, mm-hmm. their 
religious uh, uh, place. Um, dignity is so important, and um, it's just important as we talk about all of these uh, opportunities to remember that dignity is just as important as having a full belly and a place to stay. All right, which is, I think... One real strength of the Poor People's Campaign and the way that it operates, you know, and as an intentionally being, you know, ground up instead mm-hmm. of top down. Um, right. So. And Reverend Barber is, is not exactly interested in uh, encouraging rich people to help the poor. Mm-hmm. He's interested in empowering the poor mm-hmm. and exactly. in making the changes in this country at a structural level that allows all of us to have dignity. Exactly. And so, and by the way, uh, Reverend Barber's a minister. Martin Luther King was a minister, and certainly the Poor People's Campaign sees itself as being led by uh, ministers and impacted people and advocates. And I hope both of you will be involved in the Lincoln Poor People's Campaign. Thanks. Yeah, I, we hope I, to be. I think we're planning on it. That's going to be great to work with you. Thank you so much, uh, Mary, for being a part of our show today. Um, Beth, um, just to uh, let our audience know, several weeks ago, we hosted uh, Dr. Barbara, Barbara Lukert, uh, retired endocrinologist, and Reverend Lee Johnson. On our show, they uh, discussed uh, scripture, science, and sexuality, and specifically discussed what science uh, should contribute to a Christian understanding of human sexuality. And uh, we want all of our local lis- listeners to know that uh, Dr. Lukert and Reverend Johnson will be here in Lincoln on October the 7th uh, in the evening for a special presentation and discussion on science and sexuality. This event will be hosted at a, a Christ Connection Point United Methodist Church located at 4530 A Street here in Lincoln. Uh, we want to invite everybody in the community to come. Everyone is welcome. And not only that, uh, we will give you dinner. Uh, the event will begin at 530 with the soup and salad dinner, followed by a presentation and discussion by uh, Dr. Lukert and Reverend Johnson. So we just want everybody to know that and uh, for everybody to um, uh, feel wel- welcome to come uh, to Christ uh, uh, United Methodist Church and be a part of that uh, presentation. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. And, and be watching for, for news and for action being, being taken, hopefully, towards establishing a chapter of the Poor People's Campaign here in Lincoln. Absolutely. So, yes. Yeah, so we're working on that. Um, I'll probably be back and talk about that later. That with you too. Yes, we hope so. Thanks again to Mary Pfeiffer, our guest this morning. Be sure to tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. for more of Counterbalance. Until then, have a great weekend. Uh, go Big Red and experience the peace <laughs> of God in your life.